Good morning. So if we can, we'll open back up to the 24th chapter of the book of Matthew. I'll make the promise that I will make no promises about when this will be done. (laughs) It is a promise that I will make no promises. So as we have kind of broken this up in, in the first 14 verses, we see Jesus starting to answer the questions that were asked of him by his disciples after he makes the statement that there will be no stones stacked upon each other at the temple mount. And starting in verse 3, his disciples asked him, Tell us when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? We spoke about it being two or three questions that are all, in my opinion, based on the vision and the view of these Jews, all basically one thing, okay? Um, That they view the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple as being almost the end of the world. They can't fathom or imagine that this temple would not be there forever, You know, there's so many passages in Isaiah that speak to this kind of restorative time when when the Messiah was going to come and was going to reestablish Jerusalem and all nations were going to flow to it and out of it was going to flow this eternal spring that would be forever in the temple. I mean, all these things that you read out of Isaiah and Ezekiel and everything, you just kind of get this this mindset, especially if you're a Jew, that this city's going to be here for forever. And that actually the center, it's going to be the focal point of the entire world again. That at some point, all the heathen nations of the world are going to flow in and the mercy and grace of God is going to flow out. That out of Zion, all will be taught and all these things. So you get this picture when Jesus is going, no, actually, guys, none of this is going to be here. That they're going, okay, he must be talking about when nothing is going to be in existence anymore. So they ask those three questions And again, I have kind of purposed in in teaching through this that we understand that these things are kind of talking about a couple of different events, okay? Um, The first 14 verses really are are speaking intimately about the end times for the Jews at this point in AD 70 of the Jerusalem, the Jewish establishment that has come to be at this point. Verses 15 down through 28 speaks again of kind of continuing on talking about this destruction in AD 70, but there's also, he's kind of transitioning a little bit. He's moving into some things that are going to be post AD 70. Okay. Some things that are going to carry on and be a little bit broader. Okay. He makes mention as we talked about last time of the coming of the son of man, that was not going to be something hidden in a cellar. It was not going to be something mysterious or man, I'm going to say manly or based off of a fleshly kind of coming where you're coming out of the wilderness again. Okay. Remember all that stuff's already happened. Jesus already kind of came out of the wilderness. All right. John the Baptist came out of the wilderness. There was a circulating idea amongst theologians around this first century church that that's how Jesus was going to come back. They had kind of purported this idea that just like John the Baptist came out of the wilderness, well then Jesus is going to come back as the manner of John the Baptist or in the manner of John the Baptist. We see that already kind of spoken about when you see 
uh, Herod addressing Jesus and talking about Jesus and asking about Jesus. And when he does, he says, oh, he must be John the Baptist reincarnated. You know, I killed him. I cut his head off. And here's this Jesus who's kind of reminiscent of John the Baptist. It must be that this is John the Baptist come back from the dead. So there was already this kind of John the Baptist, Jesus typology that was going on. So there was a, a, a belief in the first century, and especially with, with the Jewish culture that was the early church, that that's how Jesus was going to come back. The Messiah would come again in the manner of John the Baptist. And so when Jesus says there, I'm not coming out of the wilderness, i.e. John the Baptist, I'm not coming in this kind of fleshly, natural, messianic way that you're thinking about, I'm coming as the lightning strikes from the east to the west. I'm coming with primordial, awesome power. The elements of this world that you marvel at and that scares the pants off of you, that's the kind of power I'm coming back with. It's not going to be some kind of meek, mild, timid, small display. It's going to be an awesome powerful, earth-shaking, sky-renting, heavens-rolling-up, earth-burning-away kind of moment. So if you want the closest kind of, kind of picture you can get with this of humanity fearing and trembling before the awesome power of God coming to rest on this earth again, all you have to do is rewind the tape back to Sinai and you see a good picture of it. In Sinai, as we have been going through the book of Exodus, or had gone through the book of Exodus, remember we saw the picture at Sinai where the people have gotten out of Egypt. They have been running from Pharaoh. They got across the Red Sea and they're going, whew, here we go, we've made it. And they get to Sinai and they're like, okay, what are we doing here? Not really sure, but here Moses goes up into the mountain and we've got this moment where we're going to have this kind of, things are going to get set. We're going to figure out what our marching orders are. And God comes down to dwell and talk with them. And they said, you know what? I think at this moment, we'll take a step back. Moses, go do your thing because this is literally scaring the daylights out of us. Because how did God come and speak to Moses on the mountain? As a farm boy, as a shepherd, as a, you know, whatever, big screen telethon? No, he came down as a fiery cacophony of destruction okay hanging out on this mountain with storms and lightning and blazing flames and the mountain almost wanted to melt away at the power of god just coming to rest in this place to deliver his word and all the people are like tell you what moses you got it you got it bro i'm not going near it in fact they actually entered in with moses into a covenant and said you just talk for us because we're so terrified of the power of the awesome and mighty God that we can't even be near this. So if we wanted to know how Jesus is going to come back, that's how Jesus is coming back, right? That's how he describes it in Revelations that we looked at. On the white horse with the crowns on his head, with the whole posse of angels behind him and the armies of the hosts of heaven and the sanctified, redeemed hosts of heaven marching with him on white horses, going to this glorious battle. I mean, it's like Lord of the Rings times infinity kind of end time battle thing, okay? And let me just tell you, there is no, that movie, The, the Return of the King, I know y'all, I, I say it probably all the time, Return of the King, all right, if you've seen that movie, and I don't usually allegorize movies into Jesus, but if you see that movie, and you got the scene 
where they're in front of Gondor and everything looks bleak. And then all of a sudden you hear the horns of Rohan blow and they look up on the, on the hills and there's like this host of armies on their horses and the sun's coming up behind it. It's the most goosebump inspiring scene ever. And you just know they're going to ride in and destroy everything. Okay, we'll fix that in your mind. Times infinity, all white horses, blazing light, riding into battle, and you've got this picture of the awesome and mighty power of Jesus Christ coming back. It ain't going to be secret. It ain't going to be something you're not going to see. It's not going to be you're walking along and poof, your friend's gone, and you didn't know what happened to him, and oops, that was the rapture. Jesus came, you missed it. It ain't going to be that way. Even for the ungodly, it's not going to be that way. The Bible describes it. The ungodly of all people notice it's the end times because they're like running to have mountains fall on them to get out of his way. So that's how Jesus' return is going to be. It's going to be very, very visible, okay? So it's also awe-inspiring for us to think about what that's going to be like. And that's what he was trying to encourage them. He's saying, guys, don't worry. You're not going to miss me. I promise. And don't be deceived. You know, I'm working with you. I'm preserving you. I'm protecting you. Listen to what I'm telling you. Don't be deceived about this moment. It's not something that someone is going to secretly invite you into. When I come back for my people, you will know I have come back for you. I think that's a beautiful hope that he has woven into these kind of dark and dangerous times that he's speaking of. Take notice that I'm coming back for you. Now, what's interesting and what's always kind of neat is if you think about in like a natural standpoint, okay? And this happens sometimes, you know, if if you ever watch movies, um, I'm really getting on movie references, I guess, this morning. But if you ever watch movies of like, you know, the guy stranded behind the enemy lines, I think there's actually a movie called Behind Enemy Lines. You think about the behind the enemy line moments. You think about the stranded and deserted moments. You think about like Tom Cruise on that poor little raft in the middle of the ocean moment. Okay, don't you always get goosebumps and thinks it's cool when the cavalry comes in and rescues the man who's stranded behind enemy lines, who everything looked dark and da- and dead and you couldn't get out and didn't know there was a way out you're stranded you're hopeless but then all of a sudden it's like the army comes in the seal team comes in whatever it is the big ocean liner rides past tom cruise whatever it is you know the, that moment of hope okay when your salvation looked like it wasn't going to happen everything was dark and, and nowhere out no way to survive no way to escape this moment you're hopeless and you're desperate and then boom here rides in the cavalry with all the music and you know the beautiful scene of rescue. Well, that's that's us. That's what we get to be partakers of. We get to see this wonderful moment where we get to see the, the knight in shining armor riding on his white horse coming back for us. And you say, well, what if it's not today, this year, this generation? What if it doesn't come? Guess what? You get to be a part of that host that comes back. So you're not absent out of this. It's not like you're hanging out in some obscure broom closet of heaven while everything else is going on. You're going, oh man, I missed it. No, heaven is emptied at this moment. The saints in their glorified in their glorified persons are riding on those horses behind Jesus going, hey, let's go get our buddies. You're not absent out of this. So you're on one side or the other. You're either the one getting rescued behind enemy lines or you're the one riding with a SEAL team coming back to get everybody. Either way, I think it's a pretty cool place to be. 
So in that moment, though, Jesus kind of gives us this picture of this glorious rescue. Again, he's weaving it in to the bigger story that he's talking about here. Proximal and distal interpretations. This one kind of smacks a little bit more of the distal interpretation, the idea of the end times, last days, whenever that may be, that's kind of what he's referencing. Now, we'll, I, I will kind of undercut myself on this interpretation just a little bit, but not, not completely. Still feeling pretty confident that at this point, Jesus is kind of transitioning as he kind of did with the gospel statement that he made in 14 that, you know, all this kind of proximal stuff's going to happen. Don't worry, there's a distal. All nations are going to hear the gospel. Here he kind of has this proximal, yes, there's going to be destruction. Jerusalem's not going to exist. It's going to be dangerous. People are going to be taken, death, destruction, all these things. But distally, guess what? There's a day I'm coming back and all these things are going to be set right. Then he goes forward and he says in verse... 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven. The powers of the earth uh, of the heavens shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is, is close. So likewise, you, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Verily I say to you, this generation shall not pass till all these things shall be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So let's break that section down this morning. When you look at this kind of statement, immediately you get a time frame that Jesus is giving, but then you have to put it into the context of which interpretation are we talking about? I think, in my opinion, and hopefully as we kind of look through this this morning, you'll see that it is a little bit clear it's also a little bit muddy at times okay it's hard and it usually is hard and it would be hard for the first century church it'd be hard for when you're reading things in isaiah and you're reading things in ezekiel for those jews at that point in time to be reading and hearing these prophecies and figuring out what is going to happen man we even read ezekiel and go not really sure, okay? Don't know about this throne with all these wheels and spokes and eyes and all this stuff. It's a little bit weird, okay? So there's things that we look at with interpretations that we go, mm, not so sure, okay? Even though we look at Isaiah and we go, okay, things in Isaiah hundreds of years ago, okay? Now we're thousands of years ago. Um, you know, hundreds of years ago when they would have been reading it and looking at it and they're going, okay, where is it fitting into the greater story that we have actually lived at this point? Okay, when we read Isaiah, we're always looking at it going, okay, things of the past that have been fulfilled or maybe possibly things that will come in the future. But we got to understand that was written to those guys then. Okay, they had a now contextual interpretation that was had to be interpreted, interpreted with their context, with their lifetimes. Okay, so there's some now things going on in Ezekiel and in Isaiah that we look at and go, oh, that's speaking of future Jesus. But it was also speaking of a now something. Okay. So here we got the same thing. You got to make sure, and it's not, you're not getting a, a passing or failing grade on this, okay? So when we get to the end of this, it's not like either we got it figured out or we're all going to hell. I think an amen is warranted on that one. Um, because let's just say, if I, I can't make it through fifth grade math 
this ain't going to be very, you know, it, we, we get grace in that moment, okay? You don't have to have all this figured out. It is interesting, though, for us to take it and look at it and go, okay, there's some interesting tie-ins here. To be honest with you, I went to about four or five different areas that I would like to read like a thousand verses to you, but can't, okay? And I know you're saying amen and amen. Um, there's areas in Isaiah and Ezekiel and in Joel and places that I'm like, look, you really need to read so I'm giving you some homework, all right? You need to go read Joel from one to end, okay? You need to go read Isaiah in some of these chapters because the greater context of it makes a whole lot more sense than me grabbing out chunks and sections from these chapters, okay? So one interesting phrase, though, that you notice in here is he uses this phrase that Immediately after the tribulation, those days shall, of those days, shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, the powers of the earth shall be shaken, and the sign of the Son of Man shall appear. Now, let's, let's frame this, okay? And I told you that I was going to make a statement and then undercut myself, all right? So, there is possibly a couple of now or proximal interpretations to this particular section, Okay? Number one being that when you look at the tribulation of these days, obviously we have been talking about tribulations that were going to happen up to and exceeding AD 70. Okay? There were tribulations from 33 AD to 70 AD that precursed the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay? People dying, people being thrown to synagogues, thrown to wolves, thrown to lions, all these things. There were tribulations that happened there. Okay? Some of those tribulations he's talked about are these tribulations that we have been saying are going to be surrounding the AD 70 destruction of Jerusalem. So there is kind of a proximal interpretation of that. Okay? All throughout the Old Testament, you will find the phrase, which we don't have time to look at all of them, but you can go back and just Google search it or Bible Gateway or Logos or whatever you want to use. But go back and look up that phrase about sun being darkened, moon turning to blood, moon not giving their light, stars being taken away, stars not giving their light, darkness that comes that is a darkness that no man can see because the sky is the, the cloud, I mean, the uh, stars are not giving their light, you know, all these kind of phrases that are talking about this, it's, it's used multiple times. It's always used surrounding great times of tribulation for both the children of Israel and the judgment of the world. Okay? So that phrase is used more than once. Okay? So sometimes when you're reading this, and sometimes it, you might have come to this conclusion or heard this said, you know, people will talk about the moon turning red and turning to blood and being like, okay, that's a revelations thing. That's an end time thing. That's, a, that's like an Isaiah thing. It's, been, it's, it's happened. Okay? A lot of these things have happened and they coincided with great times of turmoil, strife, and destruction kind of in and around the nation of Israel. So when he's using this here, guess what? Jesus, when he died on the cross, what happened to the sun? It went dark, okay? So there's, again, there's these times where this can be a more proximal interpretation about a great cataclysmic judgment that is not just related to this end times when you get the picture in like C.S. Lewis's, you know, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia that the scars, stars start falling to the ground and the sun, you know, all this stuff. That's, that's not necessarily always the interpretation of this phrase, okay? So there's a few times that this has happened in Israel's history. There's a time when Jesus, it happened during Jesus' time. There very well could have been a time when it was going to happen in AD 70 as well. 
So there's a lot of this, there's kind of some proximal things to it, but this is always and has always been tied to the great cataclysmic event, which is the ending of the world, okay? So we keep that in mind as we go through. When he says immediately after the tribulation of those days that these things were happening, well, we have to kind of go, okay, so it very well could have happened in AD 70. We know it happened in AD 33 with Jesus, and we know that it's going to happen in the end of the world. So there's, some in, there's about three different interpretations that are wrapped in this one section of Scripture, okay? But something that I wanted to grab out of the book of Joel, because you'll see Joel come up more than once in the New Testament, okay? you say, well, that's great. I haven't even read Joel in the Old Testament. Well, here's your option. Here's your time. Here's a good opportunity. Great time to go back and read the book of Joel. It's awesome. It's only three chapters. I mean, it's really good stuff. But if you ever wanted to put it in a context, because we read the book of Joel, and we read the book of Malachi, and we read Micah, and we go, man, this is some old stuff dealing with Israel, and that was, you know, a couple thousand years ago, and where, where does that tie in for me? Joel is extremely interesting because Joel is directly tied into what we're in existence in today. Joel preaches about the church. It preaches about the future that was going to happen after Christ is crucified. It preaches about what the future kingdom is going to look like, the future kingdom of Israel that's not the kingdom of Israel that all of these apostles and disciples think the kingdom of Israel is going to be. And Peter explains that beautifully on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So that Acts chapter 2 moment when you see kind of the, as we talk about like the formation and the sending out of the church, okay? When everything kind of came together and boom, we enter into this next phase of existence in Acts chapter 2. It is prefaced and inaugurated by Peter preaching what he did at Pentecost and grabbing Joel. Okay, that's where he goes to. So here, though, in Joel chapter 2, the first ten verses go like this. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord comes, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. That's the idea of the sun going dark. As the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong, there hath never been ever like thee, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. Okay, now this is a judgment against Israel, and ultimately it's going to come into the, um, against the, the nations as well. Verse 28, if you skip down, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. And what are the wonders? Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whoever that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now, I read those sections of Scripture because it ties everything we've talked about the last four weeks together. Notice at the conclusion of that, he mentions the remnant that we talked about for a lot. 
okay, in the last couple of weeks. Notice that he's speaking to his sons and daughters, sons and daughters, who he's pouring out his spirit on. Okay, just so everyone knows, men and women included, God poured out the Spirit on both. Okay, and especially in the early church, especially at Corinth, even you haven't mentioned about the women that were prophesying there and how that was supposed to be organized. So there is an inclusion of everybody in this New Testament church, which was different. Okay, from the Old Testament, or not necessarily Old Testament, the old established Jewish tradition that men were the ones that came into the synagogue and the women had to stay outside, okay? So he's reorganizing how this is done based on the erroneous tradition that was set up by the Jews in this first century that they're dealing with. But upon that even more, he says, I'm not going to the Levites. I'm not going to the Arianic priesthood. I'm not going to these people. He says, guess what? I'm pouring my spirit out on everyone, men and women, servants, male servants and female servants. He says, your class distinctions have just gotten blown out of the water and your gender distinctions have just gotten blown out of the water where this comes to my spirit. I am equally pouring out my spirit on my people. In this case, he's referring to a remnant or the remnant of the Jews that we talked about last time as being the ones that were delivered. Okay, Now, that is tied in, like we said, to Acts chapter 2 where Peter confirms that and says, You see all these people speaking in tongues? Guess what that is? Joel chapter 2 coming to fruition before your eyes. Where God said, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon my people and they will do signs and marvelous wonders like speaking in tongues. In Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Okay, that was one of them. Also in that too, we see Jesus tied into it. Jesus' crucifixion tied into that same section of scripture. Okay, Peter does that in Acts chapter 2. So you get kind of this tying in of where Joel is prophesying this moment of great cataclysmic destruction and judgment. Okay, And when they do that, he says it's going to be accompanied by these signs. Okay, And those signs that he gives are like the moon going dark, the sun going dark, and all these things. And he says that was Jesus' time. And also here Jesus is talking about a future occurrence with this. Okay, So now we kind of got that framework laid. There's a couple of other things that go along with this too that are very interesting that I found and I really do want to make mention of them because they it, it's it's very interesting how this is tied together, okay? Along with that in Joel chapter 3, so we talked about Joel chapter 2 was kind of a judgment of Israel and then a restoration of Israel, okay? And we've talked about that theme with this Matthew 23, 24, and 25. There is a judgment against Israel, the establishment of Israel, the religious elite of Israel who have kind of corrupted what God had said. And he says, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to find you wanting. I'm going to measure you and destroy you. There's a remnant of you I'm going to save. And from that remnant, I will restore what is Israel? The real Israel. My Israel. Okay? And so he lays that out for us in Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 3, he then addresses the wider population. And he starts speaking about the Gentiles. Okay? So in Joel chapter 3, starting in verse 9, he says, Proclaim you this among the Gentiles. Prepare a war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. 
Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Now again, why do I bring that up? Number one, found it incredibly interesting and have never caught before that he tells the Gentiles in this situation to beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Whereas we are always used to the phrase that he gives us in Isaiah that says, beat your spears into pruning hooks and your swords into plowshares. He's talking in Isaiah to the restored Israel saying, I'm about to bring a peace to you that no one has ever seen. And in that moment, you're not going to need swords anymore. You can go ahead and just make them into farming instruments. You're not going to need spears anymore. You can go ahead and make them into pruning instruments. Because I'm going to establish a peace and nation will not rise up against nation. Well, obviously, I don't think we've reached that yet, have we? But that's the glorious, beautiful revelation of the kingdom that Christ was bringing in. That he says, this is what it's going to look like. This is the peace that I bring. And ultimately, there's going to be an ultimate establishment of that peace. In a new heaven and a new earth where those kind of weapons of war are not needed ever again. But he says in this moment with the judgment against the Gentile or the non in the greater scheme the non-believing nations he says y'all better make ready for war because I'm coming with a sword I'm coming with judgment I'm coming with wrath and other places in that section he says go ahead he says the wine presses the wine vat is full and I've come to tread it out okay if you ever remember the uh, the uh, song from the Civil War that was uh, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord he's treading out the wine press where the grapes of wrath are stored okay that's kind of where it comes from. The idea that the Lord is coming to tread upon the unbelieving, wicked nations of this world. He says, it's full. Your iniquity has come to the fullness, and I'm going to squash you, is basically what he's saying. Such a beautiful way of saying it. He also says, though, that I'm coming with the sword. I'm coming to destroy the wicked. I'm coming on my white horse with all the hosts of heaven, and I'm going to make an end of this. Okay, so that's his judgment. He says, come to Jehoshaphat, come to the valley where I will make judgment. And at that day, their sun will be darkened, the moon will not give her light, and the stars will be blackened. We see again this kind of recurring theme of the elements of the nature, natural world that we exist in. The things that we take as being fact. Okay? It's a fact, right, that the sun produces light. In fact, there's a little Netflix documentary thing that it's always interesting. You pop something on like that, and like Samuel and Asa can sit there and watch that. And I'm just like, this is above and beyond educational. I can't believe that you're interested in this. But I find it fascinating, and it's always fascinating when they find it fascinating. Um, but like when they talk about the sun and how powerful it is, and it's light, and it's fish, and all these things that happens, and how the sun produces its light, and how it gets to us. It's an amazing thing. Okay, You're looking at it going... This is so crazy. Like, all of this is involved in us just, you know, being able to tan on the beach in Gulf Shores, you know. I mean, it's just crazy that it happens that way. We take it for 
an absolute guarantee that the sun will come up, light will be produced, we will go on living, right? That's a natural law that exists within our cosmos that we know to be a fact, okay? As we rotate around the sun, this is how it happens, okay? We also take for fact that the moon is going to keep doing whatever the moon does. Sitting there, hanging out, chilling, coming around at nighttime, reflecting the sun rays, and it glows, right? Unless it's, you know, we're not going to get into too scientific, but that's an established fact, right? In fact, nearly every calendar of ancient civilization was based off the moon, okay? It had phases. They were predictable. You can make a calendar off of it. In fact, we're the only weird ones that came along in the, you know, 13, 14, 1500s and decided we're going to flip it and go to a Gregorian calendar and do it by the sun and days of the week and all this. Before then, it was all moon phases. They trusted the moon. The moon guide, guided their entire <coughs> existence. All the feast days around the Lord were based off of new moons. I mean, that's just that's, that's, that was established. It was so established that it's not like it blinked out on the fritz sometimes and you're like, oh, well, there goes our whole calendar. They were able to base their entire existence, their time of life off the moon. It's an established fact. Now, there's days when we look up at the stars and they're not there, especially if you live in the city, you don't see them, okay? So that's not too hard to blot out the stars from our existence, okay? We can see that happen all the time. But in reality, though, they're still there. They're still shining. And when you get out like last night we did at the farm, you know, you get out away from all the light pollution. It's like, whoa, there's a lot of them. You know, normally I see four or five. Here's like five billion. Isn't this great? They're still there. They're still producing light. And that light is reaching us by the scientific wonders that it does. Those are natural laws that exist. The day the stars quit producing light for us, we have an issue. The days that the sun quits shining, we have an issue. Okay? There was actually kind of an ecological time frame in our existence in this world where there have been blotting outs of the sun, okay? Where volcanic eruptions have spewed so much trash into the air that it literally blocked the sunlight and reflected it back and underneath you had like a mini ice age, okay? So there's things like that that have happened. So it doesn't take a lot for this whole ecological system we live in to get thrown off when the sun's not present, okay? Thankfully, those things were few and far between, and they had an end time to them, okay? This is a different thing altogether. During the time of Jesus' crucifixion, we know that the sun went dark, okay? There was darkness upon the face of the land at that point when the Son of Man was being crucified. Again, you have to just wonder if people at that time didn't go, huh, what are we doing here? This is a little bit, I don't know what's going on. That sun was just out a minute ago. It's not like a cloud passed in front of it. It went dark. Okay, So much so that a Roman centurion can sit there at the end of it and go, I think we just killed God. I think we just killed the Son of God. I'm not a, I'm not a theologian. Hadn't been going to church. Didn't listen to his sermons. But man, did you see what happened to the sun? Did you see the fact that water and blood poured forth from him? Lightning, earthquake, some stuff happened. Things have gotten real. I think we just killed the Son of God. So those kind of geological, ecological things that happen in our cosmos around these great cataclysmic events point us to God's intervening in these moments. In these moments of great judgment, you see not only a judgment against the wickedness of the people, but how the wickedness of the people is tied to the judgments of the whole world. We see this from Genesis. 
where Genesis, he doesn't just say, you ate of the fruit and now people are bad. He says, you ate of the fruit and you broke the universe. It's not just that the people are going to do bad things now. It's that the whole universe is broke. Before that, we didn't have briars. Congratulations, now we've got briars. Before that, I like to think, we didn't have spiders. Now we got spiders. Look at what you did, okay? <clears throat> Who knows? Before that, we might have not had black holes. We might have not had a lot of things going on in this universe. But after the fracturing of the universe in Genesis 3, you have a lot of destruction and mayhem and corruption of the creation. As he says there in Romans, that the creation itself, not just the creature, the human, the creation, the world is groaning in anticipation of the restoration. And you think about it in a very natural sense. I mean, take plate tectonics. The literal earth is grinding upon itself, which produces earthquakes and volcanoes and everything. It's literally groaning underneath the strain of the destruction that happened in Genesis 3. So when he starts blotting out the sun and the stars and the moon, you see this great cataclysmic judgment, not just upon a few bad apples, but upon the entire universe. The natural law is reversed and undone. That's how you know you get people's attention. Now, you know, we might walk into our kids' rooms or we might walk into an auditorium and we want to get people's attention so we flick the lights, Okay. Well, God's going to flick the lights on us one day, and he's going to get our attention. When he starts flicking the sun on and off, and everybody's going, whoa, what's happening? And then all of a sudden, lightning's peeling across the sky, and Jesus comes back with a host. You know some stuff's about to happen. So as he's telling us there, he's saying, watch out, because when I start flicking the lights, some stuff is going to happen, right? So he judges the nations, he judges Israel. If you wanted to find in Isaiah chapter 2, that's where he says that he will judge among the nations and shall rebuke many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That is the ultimate peace of God within mankind that you will see come to fruition. Now, I've argued before and said before that the kingdom of God is a now interpretation of those verses, okay? That if you think about it in the terms that the true, real kingdom of God that diffused itself amongst all nations in the world, that within that kingdom, now I'm not saying that all kingdoms adhere to that kingdom, but within that kingdom you can find people who can go and sit down and eat a meal with Africans, Asians, Mongolians, Russians at a table of peace. Whereas once their cultural and racial divides would have brought swords, spears, and war. Okay, That within the kingdom of God, when the kingdom of God is acting like the kingdom of God is supposed to act, you find a peace there that transcends the cultural, natural, racial biases that are part of our humanity. So you can see this peace in a microcosm within the kingdom in the world today. But what I look for is the what I interpret as being the ultimate fulfillment of that, which Peter kind of references in the new heavens and new earth where you have all these same diverse people sitting down at a perfect table in a perfect kingdom where no war is ever going to be taught or known ever again. 
So here we've talked about the proximal interpretation of this, where Peter in chapter 2 of Acts makes the point that this is something that has, it, it, it has happened, it will happen, okay? In Acts chapter 2, he's talking about it has happened. In this area, we're talking about it will happen in a few short months, a few short days. So here, though, in Acts chapter 2, he makes the point that ye men of Israel hear the words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, have taken him by determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, have taken him, and by wicked hands have crucified him. But coinciding along with that in Acts chapter 2, he says that this is the fulfillment of what was prophesied in the book of Joel. And on my servants and on my handmaids I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come. When you look in Revelation chapter 6. Verses 12 through 17. You can get the distal interpretation of this. When the sixth seal is open, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth, even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man hid himself in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? The precursor to that is from, I don't know, I've given you a ton of scripture this morning, but the precursor to that is Isaiah chapter 34 and 35. Again, that's your homework assignment. Go read those two chapters because chapter 34 talks about the destruction. Chapter 35 talks about the restoration. Okay, you got to have both. God didn't leave us in destructo world, okay? He said, hey, I'm going to wipe it all out. Yeah, I'm going to roll those heavens back. Yeah, everything's going to be burnt with a fervent heat. But guess what? Chill. I'm going to restore. And the restoration is going to be perfect. So again, think about it if you're talking in terms of, and I'm, again, I'm giving a lot of scripture and a lot of analogies. So talk about it in terms of forging something, which we don't do anymore. But think about it in the idea that you have an instrument, maybe it's a sword, maybe it's a knife or something, and you break that blade. It's not just something as easy as just putting it back together, melting it, and now you've got a restored blade. What do you have to do first? You have to basically burn the whole thing down again. You melt the entire sword blade back, okay, to its primal state, and you reforge it. You can't put it back together once it's broken, right? How many of you have ever burnt, um, have ever broken something that's plastic? In your mind, what you think is, it's plastic, it melts. All I got to do is heat up the ends and stick it together, and it'll just be fine, right? How many of you have ever tried to melt plastic and put it back together? Obviously, none of you are pyromaniacs in here. All right, that is an idea though. You think, okay, well, I could just melt this and stick it back together. It's plastic, it's meltable. And if you melt something, then you can stick it back together. Obviously, we know it doesn't work, does it? Okay, the only way you'd be able to get that to work is melt down the entire piece of plastic and reform it. Okay, now following along with that analogy, what God tells us about his new heavens, his new earth is I'm going to melt it down and I'm going to reforge it. You broke it, I'm going to make it new. 
Okay? And I'm not going to make it new with a Swiffer. I'm going to make it new with a tornado of fire okay? and destruction. And I'm going to melt away and burn away all the dross and reform something that is beautiful and perfect and holy. So the implications being that there are proximal and distal interpretations in what we are still talking about. Okay? There are some of these great cataclysmic events. One of them was the death of Jesus on the cross. There was an earthquake, quake. There's fire, there's dead people jumping up out of the graves, and a lot of stuff that goes on during that great and terrible day of the Lord. Okay? You have before that the captivity of Babylon and the destruction of Assyria, where the nation of Israel was destroyed. And he says it's going to be a day that's accompanied with bloody moons and dark suns and stars falling and all these things. You have the destruction of Israel and the famine of the word of God from Malachi to Matthew. That is introduced with the idea of there's going to be a famine. There's going to be moons go black, suns go dark. Okay, You have the destruction of Jesus on the cross. Sun goes dark, earth po pops open. You have the destruction of Israel in AD 70 that I think is tied into this. Even though we don't have the historical accounts that you could technically i guess rely on and say oh yeah remember this was what happened okay but i do think it was more than likely accompanied by those same kind of signs and wonders and you have the end times destruction of the heathen and the remaking of this broken world at the second coming of jesus christ all of those accompanied by this prediction of the sun going dark, the moon turning red, the moon going dark, the stars going dark, the scars falling, all of these things reiterating kind of this mindset of the cosmos coming to an end. Okay. Now, he gives us a timing here, and he says, what you need to take notice of is the fig tree, which again, he kind of, he alludes to that in other places. Says, learn the parable of the fig tree when his branch is yet tender and puts forth his leaves, you know that summer is nigh. Before, when he talked about the fig tree, he said, You've put forth your branches, you've got your leaves, where's my fruit? Okay? Remember, that's what started all this. You've got your leaves, you look like summer's nigh, you should be producing fruit, but it's not summer, you're faking it, and now I'm going to curse you. Okay? That's where the fig tree parable started. Here he's saying, When you see these things, remember what I did before? Because it put forth its leaves. It looked like it was supposed to be doing this, and it's not. Now he's saying, take notice of that. When the fig tree puts forth its leaves, you know summer is coming. Take notice. Be aware. Notice he didn't say in here, predict the time off of this. He said, be aware. Be cognizant. Understand. I'm preparing you for this. Okay? This parable of the fig tree, though, actually translates through all of the previous verses that we've talked about. Okay? It's a warning. Just like he said, when you see the abomination of desolation get set up, head for the hills. Why? Because there's something coming after that. Okay? He's saying, I want you to take notice of all these things. You proximally who are going to be here in 30 years and are going to be trapped in Jerusalem for the siege, I want you to take notice. When you start seeing these leaves come forth, when you start seeing Roman soldiers inhabiting the temple, when you start seeing the abomination of desolation getting erected, you need to be taking notice of the leaves coming out on the fig tree because something's about to happen. But further on down the road, 
when you start seeing the cataclysmic things happen that are going to happen, when you see nation rise up against nation, when you see famines, pestilence, earthquakes, when you see all these cataclysmic events happening in the world, when you see things looking like the tree is about to bud, take notice. Be aware. Notice that my coming is imminent. Okay? He's giving us a preparation. Now he'll go on to say, I don't know when these things will happen. No man does, only the Father. But he still says, it's still on you to be aware. He says, it's not an excuse that just because you can't know the time, that therefore you have no obligation to be prepared for the time. Okay? So he says, you have to be aware of the things that are coming. He says, so likewise, when you shall see these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. And he says, verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass until all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away. So quickly to close out that part, okay, he's told us to be aware, to be watchful and waiting for this day that will happen. He told us to be aware of AD 70 to these Jewish interpreters that are here going to be the first ones to read this and understand this. He's telling it to them and he's telling it to us for all future generations that are going to be present at the time when the fig tree starts budding. Okay, But he says a phrase that is like the enigmatic phrase of the century or the millennia or the two millennia, I guess, that has bumfuzzled just about every reader and interpreter and commentator since then, which is... This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Okay? Now, if I take that at face value and I take it in the context of what I've just read, then what I am interpreting by that is that everything that Jesus just said from the first verse of this chapter till now must be fulfilled before this generation who he's writing to dies. Okay? That's, that would be the face value value interpretation that you would pull off of that if you're reading through this and you're not understanding the differences in the times, the different interpretations, the distal and the proximal interpretations, all the other stuff that we've been talking about for four weeks on this one chapter. Okay? So there are there's kind of three options that people have purported along with this. First is the one that I just talked about, that everything is going to happen in AD 70. Everything he's talked about, all of this stuff he's mentioned, all of it is fulfilled in A.D. 70, and therefore that generation saw it, passed through it, there you go, verse fulfilled. Okay. The second option is the other argument is the phrase, this generation, is speaking to a greater generation. The idea of a generation that doesn't just mean the people that are inhabiting this space at this moment, but it is age, epoch, time, the generation post-Christ, okay? So we talk about when we read in the epistles about the last days, dear brethren, the last days are upon us, and we say, okay, well, if the last days were 2,000 years ago, how are they still the last days? Because we generally interpret that phrase to mean every day since Christ died and was resurrected are the last days, okay? And that's not a... That's not a fanciful way of getting around that. That's an obvious explanation, okay? Every day post the 
Civil War is called the post-antebellum, I guess is what you call it. It's still referred to as post-antebellum times, okay? So you have this idea that every day past that, no matter how far past it, you're still past it, okay? We call ourselves in the antediluvian stage, which is post-flood, all right? That's been like 6,000 years, guys. So we're still in post-flood. Why? Because we're post-flood. So there's this idea that post-Christ is the last days, and that can continue until the last days become the last day okay so that's a phrase that the generation he's speaking of can be all the ages times years people places that come past jesus okay all the people all the generations that inhabit the last day last days okay the third option which is the one that i kind of view a little bit more that includes both is that there are the generation that's currently listening to this okay um, that is a generation, all right? We are a generation. And our generation, if these things happen during it, if all these events happen during our generation, we'll see this thing come to fruition and end before our generation will die. That's kind of the mindset that I have with it. However, there's also the proximal interpretation to this as well. I know I'm getting a little bit back and forth, but the proximal interpretation of this is that this generation that he's writing to We'll see some of these things come to pass before they die. Okay? They are going to see AD 70. They are going to see the destruction of Jerusalem. They are going to see the Roman. They're going to see all those things. So yes, that generation will see the things that that generation will see. And our generation or whichever future generation will see the things they're going to see. And both generations at both separate times will see the things that God has prophesied come to pass. And that's what I believe is the interpretation of that verse. Which is why that last phrase where he says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away, is talking about that. Okay. Now sometimes this is interpreted to mean things like the KJV Bible will be here. Okay, And that's not what it's talking about. Right? It's not speaking of that. Because you know what? When these things come to pass, when the entire earth is destroyed, guess what? The KJV Bibles are not levitating off the ground and going with him. All right? They're going to be burned up too. I know that's a little harsh thing and a little bit whatever to say, but sometimes this gets co-opted for that, and that's not what he's talking about. That becomes borderline idolatrous. That we're so enamored with a Bible, okay, a ver- uh, let me say this, we're so enamored with a version of the Bible that we elevate it to being something that it was never intended to be, okay? You start getting off into weird places and bad theology where you're basically saying it's the only Bible in the world that anybody can read, and it's the only right one, and therefore all other nations and all other people with different tongues and everything else are obviously reading Bibles that are erroneous and bad, and somehow they're not really following the things that God would have them to follow. That's just not the case. It's never been the case. KJV is a great Bible. It's not the fulfillment of this verse. Okay? There were three or four other English Bibles before the KJV. They were just as good, okay? In fact, the KJV got all its stuff from one of them called the Bishop's Bible. So other Bibles have existed. And the beautiful thing about Jesus saying that all nations are going to get my word and hear my gospel as a witness against them, guess what they're going to hear it in? Their language. Not KJV English. He didn't say, I'm going to bless one nation to have my Bible, and that's it, and everybody else better get on board and read English, or they're never going to have my Bible. 
So here when he's talking about the preservation of his words, he's not talking about an English version of the Bible. He's talking about his promises and his decrees. He's saying, when I say these things are going to happen, you can take them to the bank because my word will not pass away. When I promise you I'm coming back for you, you can take it to the bank because my word will not pass away. When I say this is what's going to happen, then guess what? This is what's going to happen. And the earth can be destroyed. In fact, I just told you I was going to do it. And my words will never fail. And when I say the earth can pass away and heaven itself can pass away and the sun can go dark and the moon can quit shining and all these other things that you take to be guaranteed things that will never stop happening, I'm telling you they all are going to go away, but my promises will not go away. And that's why I'm even harping or going down that road on this verse, because that verse, if you whittle it down to being about a version of the Bible, you have taken away its original meaning. You've taken away what he's talking about there. He wasn't promising a version of the Bible in this. He was promising his eternal rest and security for his people. He was promising his people, don't worry about the cataclysmic events that are going to happen because my promises to you will not go away. I'm coming back for you. I'm going to come like the lightning out of the sky. That even when you see the sun going start dark and you start to wig out about it like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? Just remember, I told you about it. It's going to happen. But what did I say was going to happen during that? I'm going to come back and rescue you. I'm going to send my angels and gather you from all the four corners of the earth. You will all be gathered together with me in the sky. We will go on to live in the new heavens and new earth that I have promised. And you can take it to the bank and be assured that all of these things will come to pass because I have said it and my words will not pass away. That is the sweetest promise that we have by Jesus. That we know that when he tells us something... That he means it. And when he means it, nothing can stop it. Nothing can interfere with it. That's why he says from Romans 8, you can have death, you can have destruction, you can have angels, you can have demons, you can have all these other things trying to vie for your attention and attack you. And I'm telling you that nothing can separate you from my love. Why? Because I've told you that that's how it's going to be. I've promised to you that nothing can separate you from my love. And my words will never pass away. So may God bless us to rest in that sweet promise.